We have been in the midst of a teaching series called Being the People of God. And our aim in this is to attempt to remind ourselves and realign ourselves with our identity. What does it mean to be part of God's people and therefore part of the church and therefore part of the local church? And so we've spent time talking about our identity as a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. We were reminded that Jesus is our head, that he uh, rules the church and that he is God's gift in um, oversight to the church. And that means that pastors aren't the head of the church and government isn't the head of the church and denominational leaders aren't the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church and he sets the course for who we are and for what we do. We talked about unity. We talked about the importance of being in each other's lives outside of our regular gathering. And then last week, we talked about the significance of the regular gathering of the church and how it builds up in us faith and rigor uh, and maturity. And today, what we want to talk about is the significance of the Scriptures. What is it about the Bible that is so significant to who we are as God's people? Uh, Some theologians have said it this way, that we are people of the book. That is, that the Bible in some way shapes us. And what I would say is that in many ways the Bible cements our identity and it teaches us and shows us how to lean wholly into that in order to taste the fullness of the life that Jesus himself offers. That when we go to the scriptures, we find the truth of who God is and what he has done. Now bear with me for a minute because this coming uh, week is one of my favorite days of the year. Um, I love Halloween, not because I like getting candy or even passing out candy. I'm fine with that, but it doesn't really excite me. I love October 31st for another reason, and some of you who know me already know where I'm going with this. And You're like, every year, Adam, with Martin Luther. Yeah, well, here we go again, right? Uh, October 31st is Reformation Day, long before it's Halloween Day. And Reformation Day is so significant for us. Many of you might say Adam's a church history nerd, and that's okay. You're right in that, but this is significant for us because it's part of, of, of who we are in remembering the gospel and remembering the freedom uh, that it grants us. October 31st was the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door and announced publicly that the gospel is Jesus plus nothing. That no church council or creed or pope can add anything to Jesus and make it necessary for acceptance by God. Luther's story is significant for us as we consider this idea of the centrality of Scripture to who we are as a people because it's the Scriptures that unlocked it for Luther. Luther, uh, as a young boy, wanted nothing more than to be a lawyer. 
and he wanted to do this for a number of reasons. One, his dad uh, was what we would call a blue-collar worker today, and he didn't want any parts of that, that kind of labor life. But also, his dad had high standards and high dreams and wishes for him, and so this idea of prominence and significance as being a lawyer was pushing him. Luther, in some ways, set out to be a lawyer because he wanted to make his dad proud. And much like many of us in our stories and stories in our world today, where our whole identity is shaped around trying to prove that we're significant, either to our parents or to our spouse or to other people in the world, Luther had shaped his whole existence around this. One day as Luther was traveling back to school, to law school, from his hometown, he found himself out in the midst of an open field and a storm moved into the area and there was flashes of lightning all around the area. And of course, fifth, you know, in the late 1400s when Luther is living, uh, being caught in the midst of a storm is way more terrifying than it would be in today's day and age. He's trying to find cover underneath trees. He's fearing for his life. He's calling out as a good Catholic boy to St. Anne for his salvation in that midst. And he even goes so far as to say, God, if you save me, I'll serve you forever. Right? We've seen those lines in movies and stuff. And maybe you've said them before, right? Midterms, I think, are coming up soon. We've all had midterms, and we've all said that prayer at some point, right? God, if you save me, what we mean by that is I didn't study, but I'd like a good grade, please. Then I'll serve you forever. Or you found yourself in a really traumatic situation in life, perhaps vocationally, perhaps relationally. Luther himself said these words. In fact, he said it this way. If you save me, I'll be a monk. In other words, I'll give up my whole identity, and I'll go into isolation and pursue you and God rescued him and he went right back to law school but his conscience wouldn't let him go and so as over the next days and weeks went on he was remembering what he had promised to God and much to his father's chagrin and to his own frustration he dropped out of school in the pursuit of law and he went to a monastery and he took vows and became a monk and a priest. The lightning storm shaped Martin Luther's life in profound ways, not just because it altered his vocational path, but it also created in him, or I should say cemented in him, a picture of God that unfortunately the church had taught him. That is that God is angry and is looking to punish us for our missteps. And so Luther's words in the midst of the thunderstorm were of a man who thought he was in the midst of God's judgment and was asking for it to relent. As Luther was studying to be a monk and as he was a becoming a priest and learning the different ways, more and more as he read the Scriptures, he, he heard this story and processed the Scriptures through this storyline of an angry God who wants to punish and judge people because they're not doing it His way. And he, he became increasingly frustrated at God. In fact, he said it this way, that every time he read words like the righteousness of God, because he processed it in the way of God being angry, 
said it made him hate God. Because at the same time he was processing this, he was also understanding something about himself. That is that he was a deeply broken and flawed person. Luther was well aware that he had issues. That he had struggles. That he was a sinner to use good church language. And he couldn't come to grips with how could, he, how could his sin be dealt with in the hands of an angry God. And so Luther processed it much like the church taught him in that day. That was, you have to work harder. You have to try harder. You have to be more religious. That is that the only way to secure a walk of faith is to be righteous yourself. And so Luther dove, dove harder into his religious service. And dove further into his monastic lifestyle. So much so that he even kind of beat his body into submission. He lived the penitent lifestyle that the church demanded in, the, in that day. On his hands and knees, scrubbing dirt off hard floors in an attempt to show his worthiness to God. Even going so far as to take a pilgrimage to the holy city of Rome. And in all of these things, Luther kept being more and more frustrated by the coexistence of his own brokenness and an angry God who just wanted to punish him. And then something happened. Luther was reading the Bible. He'd become enamored with the Greek translation of the Bible by Erasmus in that day. I'm getting too nerdy for you now. But anyway, he was reading it for himself, not just having popes and, and priests and academics read it to him. And he, he was reading texts like Galatians and specifically Romans and specifically Romans chapter 1, verse 17, where it says, the righteous shall walk by faith. And it began to finally click to him that it wasn't your righteousness that led to your faith. It was actually your faith that could lead to your righteousness. That is that faith in God's work for you leads to His acceptance of you as opposed to faith in your work for God proving your worth to Him. And suddenly, everything changed for Martin Luther. Because the God who he had once perceived as angry with him, he now understood to be a God who loved him. And instead of a God who was casting down literal lightning bolts of condemnation on him in an open field, it was the God who rescued him from the lightning in the open field. Luther discovered what many of you have discovered and what I discovered. It's what we call the Gospel. That God is righteous. And that we are broken. But rather than a God who is angry and fed up and just looking to put us out, we have a God who loved us so much 
that he entered right into the mess of humanity. And through his work, that is Jesus, on the cross and through the power of the resurrection, has once and for all dealt with our sin. And that if we have faith in what he has done, then God can call us righteous. Luther said upon discovering that that day, he said, it was as if I was born anew. Imagine that language, right? A whole new existence for him. Suddenly this condemnation that led to death, that led to nothingness, that led to anger, that led to bitterness, was flooded with the liberation of a gospel that set him free, that announced that God is love. So much so that later in a famous sermon, when when, uh, when he would speak about the devil and how the devil always wants to condemn us and to prove to us that we're broken and unworthy of God's love, Luther famously would say that we say to the devil, you're right! But what of it? Because I know the God who has loved me in such a way that He is taking care of it. Luther became so convinced of these truths that he realized that it was not just something for him to keep for himself, but something that had to be shared boldly to his community that was being ravaged by a corrupt church in that day. And so on October 31st, 1517, he went to the Wittenberg door, which was somewhat common in that day. You would go nail things on a door that you wanted the public to see. And he nailed up 95 theses, that is, 95 declarations of what the Scripture says about the truth of the Gospel against the corruption of the church. And someone took those theses down, took them to the printing press, which had been invented only decades earlier, and it was widespread, and it launched what we know now as the Protestant Reformation. Do you know how it started? Because Luther opened up the Bible and he opened his heart to what God had to say. He didn't sit in front of an incredible preacher. He wasn't at a massive crusade. The Bible spoke the truth to his heart and it set him free. It pronounced to him his true identity. And so why is the Bible significant for us, church? Because we believe it has the power to do that very thing for all of us. We're people of the book. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing about the significance of the Scriptures to a young pastor named Timothy who Paul has mentored and who is leading a church. And he wants Timothy to be reminded of the significance of the Scriptures for all of life. And this is what he quite famously writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 
He says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Prior to that, in verse 14, Paul had said, But as for you, continue in what you have learned, that is, the gospel. And I've become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned and how from infancy you learned it, and how from infancy, excuse me, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Paul says to Timothy the very thing that Martin Luther himself experienced, that is, the Scriptures that are able to make us wise for salvation. So why is it fair to say that we, as a people, are people of the book? Why is it fair to say that the Scripture helps form our identity? Why is it that every time we gather, we open the Scriptures together and are taught and instructed by them? I think there are three things in that passage that I just read to you that are central to that reality, that give us reasons for the Scriptures. The first is that the Scriptures are a gift from God. That they are uniquely available to us. Paul writes to Timothy that the Scriptures are God-breathed. It's an interesting word, right? Theonoustos. That means that God actually breathed them into existence. You and I, we know that real human beings wrote the Scriptures with their own hands, right? They were writing letters. They were writing um, recollections. They were writing stories to be passed along. But behind the scenes, God was breathing. It's called the doctrine of inspiration. God was breathing and, and orchestrating that reality so it would be recorded as He intended, certainly with that author's perspective, certainly with their intention, but ultimately for God's intention. This is what's called being God-breathed. That is therefore why we speak of the Scriptures sometimes as the Word of God. Now think about this for a minute. How incredibly kind of God to give us His Word. To not leave us looking on our own to try to find our way. To not give us any kind of direction would be the old view of God that Luther had. But a loving God, a gracious God, gives us a good gift that is the Scripture where He gives us His literal words. And he does it in a way which makes them incredibly available to us. Did you catch what Paul wrote to Timothy? He said, how you have known from infancy the message of the Scriptures. That's pretty profound. That the Scriptures are not some high-level thing that you have to go to Bible college, go to seminary to be able to understand. Paul implies that Timothy, as a little tyke, is understanding and processing the greater message of the Scriptures. Theologians call this the perspicuity of Scripture. That is, that it is understandable and discernible 
by everyone. How incredibly kind of God to take His Word and put it there for us. One of the great realities of the Reformation is that the Scriptures, which once were kept almost locked up by the church, were quickly dispersed and given into the hands of regular people like you and me for us to be able to read. It's one of the reasons why the Gospel and revival happened in such a profound way in those days. Because the Bible is available. The Word of God is available and it's understandable for us. And so if we believe that, we believe it's God's Word and therefore it's His grace to give us His Word. If we believe it's understandable, then it's something that we go to with regularity. The Scripture is God's gift to us. We also believe the Scripture is God's one of the ways in which God speaks authoritatively to us. We say it's a guide that's probably not even a strong enough word. That is that if God is the final authority, and we believe that, and if the Scriptures are God's Word, and we believe that He speaks through them in an inspired way, then what we also therefore must believe is that the Scriptures themselves are authoritative in our lives. In fact, that they are our final authority. Do we believe that God speaks in other ways? Yes, we do. But in coordination with the Scriptures as God's spoken and written Word. Now, are the Scriptures authoritative in any which way we take them? Of course not, right? The Scriptures are authoritative in their original meaning and when properly applied. They're authoritative in the narrative they express and the clear assertions they make. They are not authoritative when we rip them out of context and apply them how we choose to make sense of them. But it's the Scriptures that we go to to attempt to understand what it is that God is calling us to. The life that He's inviting us into and how we orient ourselves around it. The scriptures are, as one theologian right, and I think this is super helpful, they're our norming norm. The highest level of authority that continues to draw us into this identity of being the people of God. The scriptures are a gift. The scriptures are a guide. And the last thing, and I imagine you expected I would say this, the scriptures give us the gospel. Right? But this is what they do. Paul says to Timothy, hey, you've understood this from infancy, and that's significant, but what you've understood is that the scriptures have been able to make you wise for salvation. How can they do that? Because the scriptures give us the gospel. Here's what I would say. The scriptures make us wise for salvation in two ways. Initially, that is that, that moment of conversion, but also continually re redrawing us to moments of faith and connection to who God is and what God has done through Jesus. How? By telling us the Gospel. In fact, Paul gives four ways here that the Scripture makes us wise for salvation. He says that it teaches us, it rebukes us, it corrects us, and it trains us. Right? It teaches us means it instructs us. It instructs us by giving us the gospel. 
the scriptures are, I think the best way we can understand them is the, scripture, the scriptures are, pre- present for us what, what I would call a meta-narrative, right? The meta-narrative is a, is a big narrative that gives meaning to a group of people, that we find understanding from our, for our existence from it. The scriptures tell us God's story in which we find the meaning of our own story. And therefore, throughout the Bible, from the beginning all the way to the end, you will find what I would say is the exact same theme over and over and over again. That in one grand story filled with tons of smaller stories, God is telling His story of creation, of sinfulness, of rescue, and reconciliation that all points towards Jesus that when He finally comes through the cross and through the resurrection and then ultimately in His second coming will once and for all set the whole world right again. This is the story. This is the meta-narrative that the Bible is telling and pointing to the centrality of Jesus. So the, whether you find yourself reading the book of Numbers like I am every morning uh, over the last month or so, or reading the Gospel of John, reading in the book of Revelation, or reading in the book of Genesis, wherever you find it, these are the themes that are being told over and over again. And if you know the Gospel, if you know Jesus, He jumps off every single page as the ultimate fulfillment of what God has done to set the world right. The Scriptures teach us the Gospel. And then they teach us how to attempt to apply this Gospel to our life. How to attempt to orient our lives around it. Much of what Paul writes or Peter writes uh, or, or some of the other New Testament writers are attempting to to help us understand how then we ought to live on the basis of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. teaches us, but it also makes us wise for salvation by rebuking us. We don't often like this, right? No one likes to be rebuked, even in the privacy of our own home, in the privacy of our own mind. No one likes it, unless you're not like me at all. Like, I hate that. I, I don't like it even when I'm reading in the book of Numbers like I have been, and it jumps off the page showing me, man, I'm, my life is misaligned in so many ways. And the Scriptures do this. They, they point out oftentimes in significant clarity how we have misaligned our lives, how we have misordered our lives, or how we have missed the centrality of this gospel message. They speak clearly, they speak honestly, and sometimes they speak painfully so that it opens our hearts to it. The truth is that we should not find it often the case that we read the Scriptures without them exposing in us some sense of disorder personally. And that's on purpose because it's trying to make us wise for continual salvation. 
wise for being connected to the gospel. The third word is correction. It actually goes perfectly with rebuke. It sounds like two negative words, but it's actually not. The Greek word here translated correction has much more to do with restoration. That is that putting you back on the right path. Rebuke shows you you're on the wrong path. Correction puts you right back on the right path. Sounds very gospel, doesn't it? Because Paul, of course, always thinks in this way. It is that the Scriptures are not just there to show us that we keep messing up, right? That's the angry God. The Scriptures are there to remind us of how we can experience the life that Christ promised us. How we can order our lives and therefore taste joy even in the midst of a broken world. Or taste peace even in the midst of a chaotic world. How incredibly kind of God to give us in the Scriptures not only an honest assessment of our tendency to misalign our lives, but also a gentle, restorative correction to reorder it. Which, of course, is always to be reconnected to God through Jesus. That is the Gospel. Friends, the truth of the matter is that in the midst of the context of this particular passage, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is talking to Timothy in a world and in a church and in a context that is, in some ways, off the rails, right? Now, many of you, as you're watching the news or watching debates or processing a pandemic, would think of our world, in some ways, as a little bit off the rails, right? I I like to follow political polls because I think it's interesting. And one of the polls that's universally shows up is that like 80% of people in our country feel like we're headed in the wrong direction. Like, doesn't matter who's president or who's in, well, universally people hate Congress too, right? So Congress is wrong and we're headed in the wrong direction. What I get from that is there's a general sense amongst us that left to our own devices, we can't make much (laughs) of this world. And Paul, in the beginning of of chapter 3, in speaking to Timothy, is saying some of the same things to them. In fact, let me read this to you, what Paul writes to him. He says, but mark this, there will be difficult times in, in, in the last days, in those days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents can I get an amen ungrateful unholy without love unforgiving slanderous without self-control brutal not lovers of good treacherous rash conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with these people it's as if Paul was writing a description of our day right it's as if Paul was reading your social media feed, right? Not what you've written, but what all of your friends have written. Why? Because the world isn't all that different. Because it's filled with people like us who are broken and who left to our own devices are going to pursue our own power and our own significance. Paul writes these things about the Scriptures to Timothy because he knows 
that the people of the world and Timothy himself are easily put off course. We're put off course by the world, which is saying all these things, telling us different gospels, telling us different ways, promising us life in all kinds of other ways. We're put off track by our own flesh, our own self that that wants power, that wants glory, that wants significance for ourselves. The world and our flesh leads to that list I just read that you know is true of the world, but also, if you're ready to admit it, it's also true of you, isn't it? In your heart. I mean, maybe you're a profoundly better person than me, but when I read a list like that, it does that whole rebuking thing to me that I just talked about. The scripture. And then did you catch that last phrase? They have a form of godliness, but deny its power. What does that even mean? Paul is once again giving a warning against empty religion. People who are religious, but who deny the power of God through the gospel. He's talking about the very thing that Luther was embroiled in before he discovered the Gospel, jumping off the pages of Romans to him. Trying to prove his own worth through religious efforts. A form of godliness that has no power to accomplish anything. You see this? Listen to this. We can be deceived by a world that is pulling us away. We can be deceived by our own flesh that wants our own power and significance. But listen to this. We can also be deceived by religion, which is telling us a whole other truth. Paul says this is why the Scriptures are so incredibly significant to our identity as the people of God. Because without them, and left to our own devices, we will be pulled in all the wrong ways Listen, even as a gathered church, how incredibly kind of God that He makes them available to us, that He speaks authoritatively in them. And that when we open them with an open heart, we learn the Gospel, we are rebuked of our misaligned lives, but we're offered paths of restoration that ultimately train us, how? In righteousness. And so we're brought all the way back to Romans chapter 1, verse 17 that changed Martin Luther's life. How do you obtain righteousness? By placing your faith in the right thing. You're taught the Gospel. Your life is realigned And as you embrace it and begin to order your life around it, it changes how you live. The Scriptures give us the very paradigm for this thing. Listen, I'm not sure, I'm trying to be kind, I really don't believe you can grow in your faith or in the Gospel, if the regular reading of Scripture with an open heart is not part 
of your rhythm of life. If it's not, the only takeaway you need from this message today is, why not give it a try? It can radically change your life. Likewise, a church that gathers without opening the Scriptures with an open heart is just as dangerous as a human life that never opens the Scriptures. Because religion will derail us just as quickly as our prideful flesh. And religion will derail us just as quickly as a screaming world. So when we say simply Jesus, we're saying Jesus is first and foremost and everything else is second. But when we say that, we are also announcing that it is in the Scriptures that we find this message of Jesus. And therefore, we are people of the book. And it is our norming norm. Because in it, we find the Gospel that makes us wise for salvation. Can I pray with you?